0: Dear Father, we thank you so much for this uh, record of history that you have preserved and delivered to us. Uh, We thank you that you have uh, seen fit to show us what happens not just to the seed line, but to those outside of the nation of Israel as well. We see that you have a plan not just for Israel, but for the whole world, and through Israel, the world will be blessed. Uh, So we do uh, recognize your faithfulness in this passage and your mercy and your grace, and we do pray that it would Uh, speak to our souls and speak to our spirits and to encourage us as well uh, as we long for and wait for the day of your return. We do praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are in sermon number 10 of 10 in our uh, series on the provisions of God and what a Uh, better place to end than God providing for Ishmael in the wilderness. We do have one more series in Genesis before we switch to Romans, so we're not quite done with Genesis yet, uh, but uh, we do want to recognize a turning point in this passage. We'll begin with the main point so that it is at the front of your mind as we go through the message this morning. God is faithful to his promise and protection of Abraham and the seed line. Any threat to it or to the throne of the seed line, which God is erecting through the nation of Abraham, will be removed. Despite Ishmael's removal, God remains with him. He is faithful to all his promises, not only those to the seed line Though Ishmael is disinherited from the line chosen to serve as God's client nation, he is not disinherited from relationship with God. He has his own promises from God. One of the first things we want to recognize in this passage is that we begin to deal with the life of Isaac. And we're not doing a separate series on the life of Isaac. He's kind of subsumed under Abraham as Abraham's son and Under Jacob as Jacob's father he's almost the forgotten of the three uh, but he was the fulfillment of the promise of a coming son through Abraham and uh, Sarah so this is a very important event and often whereas we see so often in these important events Moses being the fantastic writer that he is he structures it very carefully and what we have here is another chiasm and it's one of the largest in the book of Genesis And it has to do with the entire life of Isaac. Now, a chiasm is a Hebrew way of organizing a text. It is the Hebrew way of pointing towards the main point and showing what is most important. Uh, You can think of it as a big X. In fact, it comes from the Greek letter ki, which is an X shape. And uh, I'll show you what it looks like towards the end here it narrows down on one point that is going to be the main point of the passage with Isaac. And we'll see that that is the uh, electing of a new matriarch so that Isaac and Rebekah come together. And from them, just like from Abraham and Sarah, comes the seed son, Jacob. But here in our passage this morning, we have God's choice of the younger son. This younger son is Isaac, and it parallels with a passage that comes later with Isaac's sons Jacob and Esau, when God will choose the younger son Jacob uh, for the inheritance, and that will come in Genesis 27. Also this morning, we are going to cover the marriage of the older brother, the disinherited brother, who is an archer or a hunter. Uh, Here it is Ishmael, and he marries a foreigner, an Egyptian. Later, it will be Esau who will marry a foreigner. And he will marry a Hittite. As we progress through the next sermon series, we will see yet another conflict between Abimelech and one of the chosen. Here we will have Abraham fighting with Abimelech over a well. That well will be granted to Abraham in a covenant. But in the next generation, Abimelech's children go back on this covenant and Isaac will have the same fight with them over this well. This will have to do with the promise of land. They've been promised land, seed, and blessing. With the seed son comes the land promise as well. And this will be the first plot of land that Abraham receives in the land. Uh, And then Isaac will have to fight for it as well. But even as they own this well, they still remain sojourners, visitors in this land until God will give it to them fully. Then we will move on to one of the most prominent episodes in all of Genesis, where uh, Isaac is offered up by Abraham in full dependence on God. So we might call this risking it all for the covenant, but placing it all on God for the covenant. Opposite that, we have the opposite uh, kind of event happening where Esau scorns the covenant, chooses the world instead of trust in God, and he sells his birthright as the oldest son for a cup of soup. We then have the genealogy or the line of the arrogated line, the line which does not receive the inheritance of land, seed, and blessing. This would be the line of Nahor, one of Abraham's brothers, and the genealogy of the arrogated line of Ishmael comes in Genesis 25. Moving in further, we have the death of Abraham's first wife, or his his, uh, true wife, Sarah, in chapter 23, paralleled by the death of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah. And right there in the middle, we have the Hebrew author, Moses, his main point in this passage, which is finding a mother for the seed line, finding a partner for Isaac, the seed son, And we'll find that in Rebecca. And of course, it's no wonder then that we get 67 verses in that chapter and about 20 in every other chapter, because this is important. Not only that, but Moses repeats himself at least three times, telling the story three times over again in this chapter. It is a very important event, God choosing the next mother of the nation of Israel. Well, before we jump into the actual text this morning, then, we're going to look at how exactly the events this morning will parallel the events of God's choice of the younger son between Jacob and Esau. First, there is a conflict between the two sons. We see this this morning with Ishmael and Isaac. We'll have to decipher what exactly was that conflict and why it caused Ishmael to be disinherited. Then we see the mother proposes that the older son depart for the purpose of protecting the younger son. The opposite is going to happen with Rebecca uh, between Esau and Jacob. She will suggest that the younger son depart for the younger son's protection. We have here the mother appealing to the father in both cases and banishing the son Uh, But the son receives still blessing and promise of progeny, not as part of the seed line, but he receives his own promise of descendants. However, Esau is not going to have the promise of future descendants, but they will pray for him to receive future descendants. So with that parallel uh, in in the front of our minds, let's move into the text this morning. And the first thing we notice is that Esau tries to make a mockery of the seed son, the chosen line. It says the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now weaning in the Hebrew world occurred between the ages of two and three, and sometimes as old as five. We don't really have a record in the biblical text, other than possibly 1 Samuel, where we see uh, Samuel being weaned, but we don't know his age at the time, only that he was very young. And at that time, he was given up to Eli for service in the uh, tabernacle. We do have an extra biblical source from 2 Maccabees 7, verse 22, uh, where we see... Oh, I can't remember which this guy was. Uh, But here we read about the weaning of a son. says, but leaning close to him, she spoke in their native language as follows, deriding the cruel tyrant. My son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. This was the Greek tyrant, I believe, that had come into Israel to take the land of Israel. And apparently his mother was uh, perceived to be a believer by the historian who wrote 2 Maccabees. This weaning took place usually at about three years old. So in this episode, Isaac is three years older than he was just a few verses ago. Uh, The biblical author often will skip large periods of time with just a simple summary of the child grew and was weaned. So he grew to the point of three years old. Now, the weaning here merited a great feast. Today, we usually have birthday parties once a year. There was no such tradition in the Hebrew world of having a birthday party. Rather, you would have parties for major milestones in your life. We might think of a bar mitzvah that a Jewish child would have at the age of 12 or 13. Well, here, one of the great feasts that takes place is at the day of weaning. The idea behind it is that the child has survived infancy, a very volatile time in the adolescent's life in which it is very possible that the child would not survive. The Asian cultures today still have a custom similar to this. They celebrate, rather than a first birthday, the 100-day anniversary of the birth, because most children, they noted, did not make it to 100 days in in their historical traditions. So this was time for a great feast. The idea is that God not only gave them a son, but he is uh, continually upholding their son, and their son is surviving. Their son is not threatened with death, but rather God is supporting him. And so they throw a great feast to celebrate the line, the seed line being fulfilled. But Sarah sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, Abraham mocking Now through this entire passage, Ishmael's name is never once mentioned. The entire section is about him, but he is never referred to by name. And Hagar is only referred to by name when the uh, author of Genesis, Moses, or God, is distancing her from Abraham and Sarah, showing a distance in relationship rather than a closeness. And so here we see that it is the son of Hagar, and Hagar is qualified as the Egyptian. Not necessarily here the maid of Sarah, though she is, not the concubine of Abraham, though she is, but the Egyptian, a foreigner. Someone from outside is coming into this family and mocking the seed line. The problem with this particularly is that Ishmael, by the world standards, has a claim to Isaac's inheritance. And so Sarah seeing the, uh, the world in Ishmael, fears the world, but fears God more. We'll see her this time, rather than how she acted in chapter 16, putting her hope, her trust in Abraham, who puts his trust in God. We have a correct use of the headship principle from creation in this case, where in the other we saw Abraham saying to Sarah, you just do whatever you feel like doing and then Sarah persecuted and and abused her maid. In this case, she puts the decision on Abraham, and Abram seeks God's decision on the matter. But the issue, again, is mocking. Now, the term mocking here is one of the key words or the main themes of this entire section of Genesis in the Abraham story. It is the verb that we get the name Isaac from. It is zahak or matzahak in this case, uh, which is what's called a PL intensive, meaning that he is not just laughing or joking or jesting, but he is making Isaac the butt of the joke. He is making Isaac a mockery. We see this in Genesis nineteen fourteen, exactly in the same uh, way, in the same context. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters and said, Get up out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. It appeared to these sons-in-law that Lot was trying to make them the butt of the joke. If they would get all riled up and flee the city, well then the joke would be on them because of their gullibility. Gull- yeah. Genesis 39, 13, moving into the story of Joseph we see Potiphar's wife accusing Joseph of having been brought into uh, her chambers in order to make her the butt of a joke. When uh, she, Potiphar's wife, saw that he, Joseph, had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to, make a, uh, to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. Now it's somewhat difficult at this point still to land on a definition for mocking. What exactly is happening? What exactly is he doing? But we do have a divine interpretation in the New Testament. Now we can't read new meaning into the Old Testament from the New Tes- into the Old Testament from the New Testament, but we can see clarification we can see a narrowing down of what was intended by the authors, because here Paul, writing under the inspiration of God, uh, interprets for us what this mocking or this jesting means. So in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, uh, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is Now, also, Paul interprets the events of Genesis chapter 21 as a persecution from Ishmael towards Isaac. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, or chapter 12, verse 3, remember what God had promised to Abraham concerning his seed line. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you or treats you lightly treats you insignificantly. I will curse or bind under a curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, whether or not Ishmael is actively persecuting Isaac or whether he is simply treating him lightly as the butt of the joke, God has promised that he will take care of this situation and that he will curse the one who is treating lightly the seed line of Abraham. I might add to this that we also have some hints in the context preceding this about what kind of mockery or what kind of persecution Ishmael might be directing towards Isaac. Back in verse 6 of the same chapter, Sarah said, God has made laughter sahak from Isaac for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Everyone who Ishmaels will Isaac with me. There is a lot of play on word happening in this passage, uh, but here the idea is uh, that anyone who hears of this situation is going to laugh with joy. And then in the next verses, we see Isaac not laughing with joy, but laughing, making them the butt of the joke. Back in the previous chapter, we saw the vindication of Sarah from Abimelech because by the world's standards and looking in on Sarah, after she had been traded off to Abimelech as a uh, as a concubine her own reputation is on the chopping block here and so Abimelech to Sarah says behold I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver behold it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared this was Abimelech's statement and public promise that he had not had Sexual relations with that woman. haha. Uh-huh. Uh, sorry. Political joke. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. The, in this moment, Abimelech is making a public testament to the fact that the son who comes from Sarah could not possibly be his. However, this is a public statement about a private scene or a private episode. No one can know apart from the testimony of Abimelech and his own trustworthiness and the testament of Sarah and her own trustworthiness. And so we see here the threat of people looking in on this situation and saying that, saying that there is something untoward about it. And so we might have Isaac here or Ishmael here seeing this situation, seeing the child who's weaned and saying, you're probably not Abraham's son. I am. This is a threat to the seed line. And the threat to the seed line comes from uh, Abraham's own unfaithfulness in the previous episode. And this may as well be the reason for the extreme overemphasis of whose child this actually is. Because in Genesis 21 verses 2 through 7, we have mentioned more times than I even bothered to count that this child does in fact belong to Abraham. So Sarah conceived and she bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who will have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There is no doubt in the text here that Isaac is the legitimate child of Abraham. But we know this through the revelation of God. Ishmael, looking on, has every uh, reason in the world to look at Sarah and say, I just don't buy it because he, in this case, is not trusting the testimony that has been given to him, but perhaps seeking for himself an inheritance that, by the world standards, is his. Well, simply put, this makes Sarah miserable, and Sarah's misery and her suggestion makes Abraham miserable, and then the uh, the mollification or the rectification of this situation makes for a time Ishmael and Hagar miserable. But in the end, God does resolve the entire situation. Therefore, she said to Abraham, that's Sarah saying to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. We see as well that Sarah perceives a threat to the inheritance, a threat to the heirship uh, of Abraham, and so her request is that Abraham drive out the maid and her son. There's going to be two terms used here for driving out. We might translate them "drive out" and "let go." "Drive out" has malicious intent behind it, or uh, at least uh, negative intent behind it in every case. For example, in Genesis 3:24, so he God drove the man out out of the garden of eden and at the east of the garden of eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life in genesis 4:14 4, behold you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face i will be hidden and i will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me this was cain In both cases, they are driven out from where they were because of a sin that they committed that excommunicated them from the fellowship that they were at at that time experiencing. We also have this term used for divorce. Three times in Leviticus and once in the book of Numbers, all written by Moses. If a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house As in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. Now remember back in chapter 16, Sarah gave Hagar, her handmaid, her slave, to Abraham as a wife. Abraham took Hagar as a second wife, not just a concubine. So she was elevated from slavery to uh, marriage, to wifehood. But here, Sarah calls her this maid, this slave woman, and her son. She is saying, perhaps here, divorce this slave woman and her son. Send her away in the same way that a man sends a wife away. After Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abraham's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid... And gave her to her husband Abraham as his wife. The reason that Sarah wants her sent away, sent away with her son, is because the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Naturally, as it would any human father, this matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Here is one of the only times in which Ishmael in this passage is called the son of Abraham, and Abraham calls him that himself. Very interestingly, when God speaks to Abraham, God does not refer to Ishmael as Abraham's son. God refers to him simply as an adolescent, this young one or this unexperienced one. But God said to Abram, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid, your slave woman. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. This is the only time in all of Scripture, so I'm told I didn't have time this week to go read the entire Bible, that God ever tells a husband to listen to his wife. I'm not saying there's something there, but we have been given explicit uh, warning after the fact here in Genesis within the same context. Uh, Actually, this should be Genesis 3.17, not 16.3. But remember back in the Garden of Eden. Then to Adam, he, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now, we might be tempted, because of the similarities here, to say that the whole point is whether or not man should listen to his wife or not. But the whole point is the thing that the wife has told the husband to do. In this case, in the Garden of Eden, the wife told the husband to go against the Word of God, to do something that God had explicitly said not to do. And it was the husband's responsibility in that family to make sure that it did not happen. But here, we have Sarah, whether or not she is intending to follow the will of God or not, requesting something within the will of God, requesting that the seed line be protected, that the seed line be preserved from an, uh, from an outside heir, like trying to lay claim to the throne. And so, Sarah's request is within the will of God, and she asking her husband and her husband going to God, God grants the request, and he gives it to the husband and says, what your wife said, do that. God continues as well. He doesn't just leave it at banish them, send them out, but he comforts Abraham, the human father of Ishmael, who is distressed Having his son sent away from his presence. He says, And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So God has promised Abraham here that he is not going to abandon Ishmael. But Ishmael is not going to share in the specific promises of the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant has God's purpose of bringing about the Messiah, God's purpose of bringing about a nation of his own choice in which he will plant the throne of this earth that the king of this world will sit on. And Ishmael does not have a part in this specific plan and purpose of God. But he is not abandoned by God. God will still do things with Ishmael's line. God will still protect and preserve Ishmael. And the reason being in this case is that he is a descendant of Abraham. But he is not Abraham's chosen seed. He is not the one that God will use for his purpose. Remember back in Genesis 17, verse 18, how Abraham had pleaded for Ishmael after hearing the promise concerning Isaac. And you remember that this was not Abraham trying to say, forget Isaac and give me Ishmael instead, but after hearing God's plan for Isaac specifically, his natural question, what about Ishmael? Don't cut Ishmael out of this whole deal. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, yes, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. God is granting Abraham's request, but it will not override his plan with Isaac. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, there is some debate whether or not what Sarah and Abraham did by disinheriting Hagar and Ishmael was legal by the world's standards in that day. There are many texts in the Code of Hammurabi which appear to say that under no circumstances can you disinherit a a concubine son or a second wife's son once you have received a natural heir. They have to receive some part of it. But It seems to have been under some degree of debate in that day. Some laws say you can't do it. Some laws say you can do it. So I don't think the issue here is the legality of it, but whether or not it was within God's will. Here we have uh, from the Lipit Ishtar Law Code from 1875, which was just about 150 years after this episode. If a slave bears children and the father then grants freedom to her and her children... The children of the slaves shall not divide the estate of the children of their former master. The idea here being that their inheritance is their freedom. They get to go free. They don't also get a portion of the inheritance. But if they remain part of the, uh, the group of slaves, though a descendant, they would share in the inheritance. And so what needs to happen here for Ishmael to be separated from the inheritance is that they need to be set free. They need to no longer be slaves to Abraham and Sarah. And so with that, we get into the exile of Hagar and Ishmael and the manumission of both of them, the setting free of a slave. In Genesis 21, verse 14, we have the episode where Abraham sets free his slave, both Hagar and his descendant Ishmael. First, we note that Abraham rose early in the morning. We have seen him rise early in the morning before. Uh, We kind of get the idea that he's not a natural early riser, but that he rises early as a note of resolve when there is something he must do that perhaps he does not want to do. Now, Abram arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Abraham got up early in the morning to see whether or not God had found any righteous persons in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he received a negative answer to that, because God had destroyed the city. He had not saved it. He had not found ten righteous persons in it. Genesis 20 verse 8 with Abimelech after he was told by God in a night vision that he is a dead man because of his sin with Sarah. The next day he rises early in the morning and calls his servants and he tells them these things in their hearing and the men were greatly frightened. The First thing he does in the morning is tells the, uh, the uncomely story of how he became a sinner with Sarah. This was an admission of partial guilt. This was not something that Abimelech looked forward to, but it is something that out of resolve, he was obedient to do immediately. Abraham as well is going to immediately be obedient uh, and resolved to be obedient when God tells him to take his only son up Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. Once again, we'll see Abraham rising early in the morning to do so. So here, Abraham, knowing full well that he is about to disinherit his son and send them away and perhaps never see his son again, rises early in the morning. He takes bread and a skin of water, and he gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder. Now remember just how wealthy Abraham is. Abraham has so much to his name that he and Lot had to uh, part ways because of the conflict. In the next episode, we're going to see Abimelech and Phicol come to Abraham, probably because of his power in the land, because of his wealth and riches, and strike a covenant or a deal with him. He has plenty that he could give them more than bread and a skin of water. But what he gives them is enough to get them from his household to another town, just enough not to make them independent but to make them go somewhere else for dependence. He gives them to Hagar, the them is the bread and the skin of water, and he puts them, the bread and the skin of water, on her shoulder. Some translations will twist the words here a bit to make Ishmael also one of the items that Abraham puts on Hagar's shoulder. And while we recognize from the natural progression of the text and the context of the text, that Ishmael is somewhere between 17 and 20 here, a little too big to be put on the shoulders of his mother. Uh, Back about 100 years ago, there was a theory uh, called the J-E-D-P theory that Moses did not write Genesis, but that four different authors wrote it over thousands of years, and they kept going back and redacting and changing and altering and adding and editing. And so what we have is the result not of one author under the inspiration of God, but many authors creating folklore one of the ideas here is that this episode mirrors so well Genesis 16. It actually doesn't mirror so well, Genesis 16, but has similar events that it can't possibly be two different events. It has to be the same. And so one way that they would twist it to try to make it the same would be to make the boy, Ishmael, a young child rather than an adult male. And so they would try to make him a baby that Hagar was sent away with. And most times when you'll see Uh, Art depicting this scene, you'll see a little baby sitting under a bush with Hagar, feet away, uh, crying. Ishmael was no baby at this point. Ishmael was somewhere between 17 and 20 and not sitting on his mother's shoulder. But just as Abraham gave Hagar bread and a skin of water, her only possessions that he gave her to take away, he also gave her the boy. This does not simply mean that he had the boy accompany her in departing, but he rendered over to her the boy. He surrendered him. He entrusted him in the same way that we see in Genesis 17.2, God establishing, Natan, his covenant between Abraham and himself uh, to multiply him exceedingly. He gave this covenant to Abraham as a possession that belonged to him. Here, Abram is taking his possession, his son, his descendant, and giving it to the woman, and it now belongs to her. The boy is fully under Hagar's responsibility. And then, at that point, he sends her away. Notice the difference in phrasing here between what Sarah told him to do to drive her out and what Abraham does. He sends her away. We have both of these terms as well in Exodus chapter 11, when Israel is being let go or freed from slavery in Egypt and then driven out by the wrath of Pharaoh. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, I will surely drive you out from here completely. God is going to drive them out of the land of Egypt so that they will not return. He is cutting off uh, their source in Egypt. In Numbers, we're going to see them whining and complaining and saying, we should go back to Egypt, but God keeps them from going back to Egypt. And so having been cut off, having been driven out, having been set free, no longer under the authority of Abraham, and given enough provisions to make it from uh, Gerar or wherever they are to another town just a couple hours. She departed and wandered about. The, the phrase here means wandered aimlessly. She was lost and wandering. She did not go right to another city, but she squandered what she had walking aimlessly through the wilderness. Uh, This is also the same phrase used of Israel wandering about in the land of Israel, having not gone directly into the land by faith that God had told them to go into. Where she's wandering is the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, we haven't encountered Beersheba yet. It is given to us proleptically here. That means looking into the future because the next episode is going to be about Beersheba. This is where Abraham is going to sign a covenant With Abimelech and Phicol. Beersheba literally means the well of seven or the well of oaths because Abraham is going to make an oath at this well with Abimelech. The land where Abraham and Sarah and Hagar have been sojourning is Gerar, where Abimelech is the sovereign. You'll notice it's just southwest or southeast a bit of Gaza, which is still the Gaza Strip today. which uh, I did not get to visit because that is a terrorist location. Uh, But we did get close to Gerar, uh, and we did get close there to Beersheba, which is just a little ways away. Uh, But she is essentially wandering down in this arid desert land uh, in the northern Negev, just south of where Abraham uh, lived. She's not heading directly to another city. The result of this We get to see her and her son's mortality. We get to see uh, when they're not in dependence fully on God, what happens to them, but then placing their dependence on God and God comes to the rescue. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. This is another one of those verbs that they use to say that this was a child because uh, literally the verb shalak means to throw or to cast down. And the idea that uh, they would draw on here is that the boy has to be small enough that she carries him so that she can throw him down uh, to the ground under the bushes. Uh, The problem is this isn't even the best translation of this term, and it's a translation outside of context. Context needs to determine the meaning. So we have two options. Uh, Shalak can also mean to drag. Her son would be so large that she could only drag him through the desert but it also means to lower the same way you would lower someone into a grave, which is not to pick you up and throw you, but to let down slowly. Genesis 37 uh, verse 20 says, Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. This was Joseph and his brothers uh, dis- were actually Joseph's brothers, deciding to kill Joseph and throw him into one of the pits. Reuben comes along and says, let's not kill him, let's just put him in one of the pits. And when he says, put him in one of the pits, he still uses the same verb. Let's lower him down into one of the pits. The same will happen to Jeremiah in chapter 38, verse 6. They took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern. We might think of this as throwing him until we see the context of Mal. Malkijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. They didn't throw him down. They let him down. Now in the cistern, there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. So Hagar lays her son, her adult son, under a bush, probably to give him just a little bit of shade as he dies. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. Uh, this is kind of a normal, uh, a normal phrase giving distance. It would have been just a couple hundred meters away, uh, probably far enough away that she could still see him, but not close enough to hear him. Uh, and she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. Remember back in chapter 16 how we saw Hagar uh, exercising more intimacy with God than anyone to that point had been explicitly noted as having been uh, intimate with God. Her, the way that she spoke to God, the way that she interacted with God uh, showed that she had an intimate relationship with this God. She met this God, of course, through her master Abraham. This was not her God in Egypt, but she adopted this God in a similar way that uh, Ruth would adopt Naomi's God. This was still her God when she left Abraham. This is still the one to whom she prays when she is in distress. And note here as well, this is the first prayer of petition in in all of Scripture. Nowhere up until this point has anyone prayed to God asking him for something. She says, do not let me see the boy die. She sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. So she's crying. She's praying out to God. And remember what Ishmael's name was. Ishmael's name was God hears. But it's not until God hears the voice of the lad crying that he responds. Now, in this phrase, once again, I might note, nowhere in this chapter do we have Ishmael's name explicitly stated but the phrase God heard is why Ishmael lohim. why Ishmael ohim. God heard the lad crying. We have his name in the text. We don't have him addressed by his name. But we note the reason why he was named Ishmael in the first place was because God gives heed to Hagar's affliction. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child And you will bear a son, and you shall name his name Ishmael, meaning the Lord has heard, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Here we have the Lord giving heed then to Ishmael's affliction. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Now, in chapter 16, when the angel of the Lord visited Hagar, he comes from heaven and appears before her. Here we only have his voice from heaven. We also have one other distinction, where prior she sees the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, here she sees the angel of God, Elohim. She at this point has been separated from the covenant of Abraham. And so God's covenant name, Yahweh, is not used in this case, but Elohim is used. Hagar still has as her God, the God, the creator of the world, Elohim, But she does not have the covenant that Abraham has with him. So he is to her not the angel of Yahweh or the messenger of Yahweh, but the messenger of Elohim, the God of the whole world. This messenger or angel of Elohim calls to Hagar from heaven and says, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear for the reason God has heard. Ishmael once again, the voice of the lad where he is. God was listening. God was paying attention and he acts. He tells Hagar, arise, get up. Then to lift up the lad. Once again, our translations sometimes make the meaning here that she holds in her hand, Ishmael. But rather what we have in the Hebrew text is that God tells her, Not only to lift him up, but to support him with her hand. Hold him firmly with your hand. For the reason being, I will make a great nation of him. When God had promised to Abraham that he would make a nation of his son because he was his descendant, he simply said he would make a nation. Here, Hagar is given an even better promise. Not just a nation, but a great nation will come from him. And at that point, God opened her eyes. He showed her, or he let her see, and she saw a well of water. In the next, actually not quite in the next episode, but in the next chapter, in chapter 22, we'll see God do the same thing with Abraham. When he is about to sacrifice his son Isaac, God speaks from heaven and tells Abraham to lift up his eyes. And when he lifts up his eyes, he sees a ram in the thicket, a provision from God standing in the place of what otherwise would be death. God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. This was the rescue of Hagar and Ishmael. We know that uh, they make it safely to wherever they're going after this because, once again, we get a quick summary view of the rest of Ishmael's life. He'll appear one more time At the burial of Abraham, and then we'll get his genealogy, and then he disappears from the text entirely. But here is the summary of his growth God was with the lad. Remember, Abraham had asked, God, may Ishmael walk before you? God said yes, but not as the covenant son, not as the seed son. God is faithful to this. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness. And he became an archer. Now this has some similarities with Cain and with Nimrod, but Ishmael is not depicted here to be an evil character. There is debate whether or not Cain is even meant to be an evil character rather than just a character who is overcome by sin. Nimrod, doubtless, is supposed to be an evil character. But what we have here instead is a similarity with the disinherited son, a similarity with the one who has been put under a curse, but who has still been protected by God. Genesis 4.14, remember of Cain, Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. One difference between Cain and Ishmael is Cain is sent away from the presence of God. Ishmael, however, continues to live in the presence of God because God was with the lad. But here he's fearing for his life, wandering in the world. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Although God is casting Cain away from fellowship with him, he is still acting to preserve him in the world. He is still acting faithfully towards Cain. In verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod or the land of wandering east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Cain's response was to go and to build for himself a city. Ishmael's response is to go and live in the wilderness. Moving to Nimrod, we see that he comes once again from an arrogated line. Genesis 10.6, the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan, the uh, exact line of descendants that had been cursed by God in the episode with Ham and Noah. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Raama and Sabteca, and the sons of Raama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one uh, on the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So we have a similarity here between Nimrod and uh, and Ishmael, and this similarity is somewhat shared by. Cain, as well, where they were, uh, their their vocation had to do with animal husbandry or hunting. But once again, we see that Nimrod's focus was the city. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-er and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Nimrod was trying to establish for himself a name in this world. But remember the promise that God had given to Ishmael that God would make him a great nation. And he depends on God for that, and God continues to walk with him through his life. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered, abro- excuse me, scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." There is also a similarity here between Ishmael and Esau. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Very similar to Abraham. So this arrogated seed line then, or this arrogated line, this line that has been cut off from the covenant, Um, continues to live, continues to grow, continues to thrive, but apart from the promise of land and seed and blessing. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. Paran is that eastern part of the Sinai Peninsula, one of the areas that the children of Israel will come through as they're about to enter the land. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Egypt. Now, it is usually the job of the father to find a wife for his son, but the father had given full responsibility, including the fatherly responsibilities, over to Hagar because he had freed them. They were set free and divorced. So, it's the mother's responsibility, and she finds a son or a a, a wife for her son from the people of egypt and this was because she herself was from the people of egypt she has nothing to trade nothing to barter you remember the daughters of lot how they looked to the world and they said there are no husbands for us because the father had nothing the father had no people the father had no wealth the father had no land but hagar can fall back on her heritage she can fall back on her roots and find a wife for her son And so uh, we also note that in Genesis 24, when we're getting into that chapter that is Moses' primary point when he comes to the uh, narrative about Isaac, we see the choice of a wife for Isaac. Now, Abram was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servants, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, "'Please place your hand under my thigh.'" This was a way of making a covenant promise. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. So just as Hagar goes back to her heritage to find a wife for Ishmael, so Abraham has this servant go back to his own people to find a wife for uh, Isaac. We see that the matriarchy is just as important as the patriarchy in uh, this development of the seed line. God was just as careful about it being Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, as he was about making sure it was Sarah, who is the son, or was the uh, father of, mother of Isaac? He is going to be equally careful about who is the mother and father of Jacob. And this is because, or this is the main point because of that. Just as Abraham and Sarah were the main characters of the last uh, pericope, if you will. here, Rebekah and Isaac are going to be the main point. Because God is curating specifically a line in human history through which he will bring the Messiah. And if we know anything about genetics, it's that the mother actually carries the seed in her. And so he is choosing from the woman, uh, the woman who will bring about this seed line. We have this promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that it will be the seed of the woman um, who will crush the head of the serpent. God is very concerned with who the mother of this lion will be, and she has to come from the people whom Abraham himself came from. In Genesis 26, 34 to 35, we see that once again the arrogated lion, or the cut-off descendant, is going to marry outside of this covenant people. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. He marries two women, both are Hittites, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. All right, our main point this morning, God is faithful to his promise and protection of Abraham and the seed line any threat to it or to the throne of the seed line, which God is erecting through the nation of Abraham will be removed. Despite Ishmael's removal, God remains with him. He is faithful to all his promises, not only those to the seed line. Though Ishmael is disinherited from the line chosen to serve as God's client nation, Israel, he is not disinherited from relationship with God. He has his own promises from God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the wonderful testimony of your faithfulness. We thank you that we see hints here, even at the very beginning of your uh, purposes with Israel, that you will use Abraham to bless the entire world. We recognize your unique distinction of the nation of Israel, your unique purposes for them, and how you have kept them distinct throughout history and even today. We praise you as we uh, see your faithfulness towards them and as we see you working through them to bless the whole world, to bring about the Messiah, uh, to bring about salvation, and to eventually bring about your kingdom. We do praise you for your wonderful faithfulness in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.